Uh, well, good morning again. It's a great privilege to be with you today. Uh, and my subject this morning is grace. It's one of those words we use all the time. We say grace before meals. We talk about God's grace to us. We began this morning by singing of God's amazing grace. But what is grace? What does it mean? And how important is it really? This morning, what I want to do is unassume the concept of grace. Pull it apart just a little bit, look at it. And as we do that, we're going to be reminded that the entire Christian life from beginning to end is lived on the basis of God's super abounding grace to us in Christ. At every stage of the Christian life, we live by grace. We begin justified by grace. We're declared not guilty by God the judge. Christ has paid our debt. Our score is settled. Uh, the tab has been paid. Uh, we don't just have a clean slate. There is no slate. It's been broken up and thrown in the bin. We begin the Christian life justified by grace. And we continue sanctified by grace. Gradually, uh, we're made a little bit more holy, more and more like Jesus. Day after day, God chips off the rough edges and transforms us into the likeness of Christ. We continue sanctified by grace and we will end by grace too. We are glorified by grace. In his incredible kindness, God will take us to his new creation. We'll no longer be mortal, subject to sin and death. We'll be transformed fully and finally and fit to live in God's new creation. The entire Christian life is lived on the basis of God's super abounding grace to us in Jesus. Grace is what we need. Grace, the love of God shown to the unlovely. Grace, God's free and unmerited favour shown to guilty sinners who deserve nothing but judgment. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is what we need. Grace is what we all need. Grace is what we always need. Now, in preparing this book, uh, preparing this book, preparing this talk, I leaned quite heavily on a book, uh, Transforming Grace, by a guy named Jerry Bridges. I had a really old, ugly, red version. It's a much nicer version available through Kurong these days. Um, if you're looking for a winter read uh, on the, co the cold, long nights at the moment, uh, you can grab a copy and it's well worth your time. Uh, how about I pray uh, and then let's consider together the super abounding grace of God. Almighty Father, thanks for the chance to consider your word together. Uh, thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Please, Lord, uh, as we dig into it a little this morning, please uh, sharpen our minds, uh, soften our hearts, uh, that we might hear and understand and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We all need grace, whether we're good or bad, proud or humble, religious or non-religious, we all need God's grace. But many of us don't like to admit that. Now, Stu mentioned just before that I was preaching on the second of our two readings this morning. Surprise, Stu. I'm actually preaching on both of them. <laughs> That's okay. Um, briefly on both of them. Don't worry. Uh, the first one, uh, Luke chapter 18, uh, is the story of two men that, uh, who went up to the Temple Mount to pray. It's a story told by Jesus. Thank you so much, dear sister, for reading that for us. Two guys, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, or if you like, a religious expert and a businessman. 
Who are you more like, do you think? Are you more like the Pharisee or the tax collector? It's kind of a hard choice, isn't it? On the one hand, we've got the tax collector. Selfish, greedy, interested in his own comfort. On the other hand, we've got the Pharisee. Relentlessly religious, self-reliant and proud. It's not exactly an easy choice, is it? Which one are you more like? The thing is, though, both men need grace. They just don't realise it. Well, one realises it, but one doesn't. Now, listen to what the Pharisee says about himself in verse 11. Uh, If you've got a Bible handy or a phone or something, you might find it helpful to have the verses in front of you. Um, Luke 18, verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. The Pharisee needs grace. He thinks he's got it all together because his religious performance is superb. So he arrogantly looks down on everyone else. He's self-confident about his self-righteousness. He doesn't actually care about God's opinion. He just wants to look good in front of other people. If he was around today, he'd probably be in church every Sunday. Christian in name, but in reality, self-reliant, and satisfied with his own goodness. Or she might be someone who has no place for God in her life. What do I need Jesus for? I see no need for him. The Pharisee thinks he's got it all together, but does not see the need for God's grace. The tax collector, on the other hand, he knows he needs God's grace. He knows his religious and moral performance is well below par well below the acceptable standard. He knows what God wants and he knows that he hasn't done it. Look at his prayer in verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is a man who's selfish and greedy. He's taken from the poor and the weak so that he could live in luxury. If we were around today, he might be a telemarketer or someone sending SMS scams, perhaps someone who struggles with pornography or an inappropriate sexual relationship. He knows God's standards and he knows he doesn't measure up. Whatever he or she has done in the past, now he's got a guilty conscience. Perhaps he has trouble sleeping at night. And so he asks God for mercy. Both kinds of people need grace, but only one kind will get it. God gives his grace to those who admit they need it and ask him for it. Do you need God's grace? Are you willing to admit it? Are you willing to ask for it? Despite their differences, though, the Pharisee and the tax collector have got one thing in common. They've both made a simple mistake. And it's a mistake that I think we are prone to as well. Uh, The Pharisee and the tax collector both think that their standing with God is based on their performance. Can you see that? The Pharisee looks at his religious performance and says, I rock. The tax collector looks at his religious performance and says, 
I've failed. They both think it's about their performance. And I think we are prone to making that same mistake. We think that our ongoing relationship with God is about our performance instead of about his superabounding grace. If we've performed well, according to our own definition, whatever that definition might be, then we expect goodness from God. But if we've performed less than well, well, we expect less goodness from God. I can't see why God would want to answer my prayers. I haven't had a quiet time in a month. Have you ever thought that? But the truth is, we all need God's grace all the time. The saint as well as the sinner. The missionary as much as the new believer. The campus staff worker as well as the retiree. We all need God's grace. And we all need the same amount of God's grace too. Because God does not deal with us according to our performance. The currency of our good works has no value. You can't earn God's blessing with good performance and you can't forfeit God's blessing with poor performance either. Now, I suspect most of you would agree with what I've just said. We're saved by grace. All our works are filthy rags. We sing that in one of the songs that we sing. But when you look at our behaviour, we act as though our ongoing relationship with God is based on our performance, our sweat. We act like we're on a performance treadmill. Grace has put us on the treadmill and kind of given us a push to get us running. But if we're going to go the distance and stay on the treadmill, it's going to be because we run hard enough, because we performed well enough. Saved by grace, but running by our sweat. Running by our works. No, no, it's not about our performance. It never has been and it never will be. Do you feel like you're struggling to relate to God at the moment? Well, it's okay. Your relationship with God is not based on your performance. Perhaps being stuck at home over the last two years has meant you've lost your routine. You haven't gone to church or work or Bible study as much as you would in the past. And the lack of rhythm and and the lack of routine and the lack of seeing other believers has made you feel disconnected from God. It's okay. God doesn't love you any less because you've been less regular in connecting with him. He relates to you on the basis of Christ's merit, not yours. We all need God's grace, no matter who we are. No matter how religious or irreligious, no matter how excellent or poor our moral performance. Grace is what we need. Grace is what we all need. Grace is what we always need. And it's what our Heavenly Father generously gives us. I want to give you a moment just to consider. How are you tempted to act as though your ongoing relationship with your Heavenly Father is based on your performance? I'm going to give you a sec to think about that. What did I do with my water? It's over there. Grace, 
We all need it. Let's press into that just a little bit more. As the song says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch like me. It's, it's kind of evocative language, isn't it? But we don't use the word wretch very much anymore. Uh, most people don't really know what it means. So let me put it another way. We were utterly unrighteous. And yet God mercifully saved us by his grace. We were utterly unrighteous. And yet God saved us. This is one of the main themes of the Bible. And we find it everywhere. This morning, I want to go to Titus chapter 3. Uh, you might like to turn there in your Bible or on your device. Uh, and this is the Apostle Paul writing to Titus, one of his trainees in ministry. He instructs Titus to remind the church on the island of Crete to devote themselves to doing good. To doing good. Now, what kind of good, you might ask? Well, let's have a look at Titus 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. What kind of good? Obeying the law. Not slandering, that is not speaking harmful lies about people. Being peaceful, considerate, and gentle. Sounds good, but why does the Apostle Paul think that the people on the Isle of Crete need to devote themselves to doing this kind of good? Why do they need to be reminded to do that? Well, it's because Paul and Titus both know, they both know that these things don't come naturally or easily. Look at how he describes himself and Titus in verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. His point is that they were both just like the Cretans. They were utterly unrighteous, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hated and hating. It's not pretty, is it? But it's a description of what all people are like by nature. We are utterly unrighteous. We're fools. We make bad choices. We're disobedient. I won't let you tell me what to do. We're deceived. We think we know what's best. But usually we have no idea. Instead, we're slaves to our own passions, our own desires, our own pleasures. Uh, there's a quote I heard some years ago. No one ever sinned who didn't want to. No one ever sinned who didn't want to. It might have been Marcus Reeve from um, Crossroads in Canberra who said it, but maybe he was quoting someone else, so I, I don't know who said it originally, but I think it's, a, it's really helpful. No one ever sinned who didn't want to. As much as we want to be free from sin, as much as we hate it when we hurt ourselves and others, as much as we know that our sin offends God, in the moment when sinful desire grips us, we want to sin. You know what? Stuff it. I'm going to do it. We're enslaved by our own desires and pleasures. 
And in verse 3, Paul goes on to say that it's not just ourselves that we harm. Sin poisons our relationships too. Malice. That's me wishing evil on you. Envy. That's me wishing that the good that you've got would come to me. Uh, Me to you, you to me. And then the pattern repeats. Hated, you hate me. Hating, I hate you. Me to you, you to me. By nature, we're not kind or gentle or loving or generous. We're gripped by our passions. And if you get in my way, watch out. We were utterly unrighteous by nature. But then, something changed. Verse 4. We were utterly unrighteous, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, that's talking about the appearing of Jesus, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us. Not because we'd done righteous things. I mean, see verse 3. We were utterly unrighteous. He saved us because of his mercy. Grace. Not performance. He doesn't save us because we deserve it. He saves us because he is kind and loving and merciful. And how? How did he save us? Well, the second half of verse 5 tells us, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. See, God has given us new birth by generously pouring out his spirit on us. He's done it through Jesus Christ. He has justified us by his grace. He's declared that we are not guilty. Legally, we're in the clear. And why has he been so generous to us? Why has he shown us this grace? Why has he set us free? What was his aim? So that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's the end of verse 7. See how generous God has been to you? You were utterly unrighteous. And yet, not only has he saved you, he has washed you and made you new. He has poured out his spirit on you. He's declared you innocent and is giving you a place in his eternal kingdom. God has had incredible mercy on you. God has never related to us on the basis of our performance. We were utterly unrighteous and yet he has mercifully saved us by his grace. And if that's true, why would it start being about performance after he's already graciously given us a right relationship with him? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? The entire Christian life is lived on the basis of God's superabounding grace to us in Christ. We begin by grace, we continue by grace, and we will end by grace. Grace is what we need. Grace is what we all need. Grace is what we always need. Are you willing to not only believe that you need God's grace, are you willing to live like it too? Will you accept that God only ever deals with you according to his grace in Christ? Will you admit that it's not about your performance? Will you believe that all your interactions with God 
every day have nothing to do with your performance and everything to do with his grace in Christ. Because God only ever deals with you on the basis of Jesus' merit. So will you get off the performance treadmill? Will you accept that Jesus is the super endurance athlete who has already run that treadmill to a standstill? Grace is what we need. Grace is what we all need. Grace is what we always need. The entire Christian life is lived on the basis of God's superabounding grace to us in Christ. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life of obedience and trust and faith. Thank you that he honoured you as you deserve. Father, we're sorry that we don't. but We praise you for your grace to us in Christ. And thank you that that grace not only starts us off in our faith, thank you that you deal with us according to grace every single day. Father, please cause us to trust ever more deeply in Jesus and on his death on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.